you don't know, Jaden's currently working on his degree in biblical theology. Yes? Yeah? And so putting that good uh, education to work with those names is fun. <laughs> Proud of you. Uh, today, we, I want to start off uh, with a poem, actually, entitled Introduction to Poetry. It's fitting, right? The poem says this. It's written by Billy Collins. I asked them to take a poem and hold it up to the light, like a color slide, or press an ear against its hive. I say drop a mouse into a poem and watch him probe his way out, or walk inside the poem's room and feel the walls for a light switch. I want them to water ski across the surface of a poem, waving at the author's name on the shore. But all they want to do is tie the poem to a chair with a rope and torture a confession out of it. They begin beating it with a hose to find out what it really means. If you don't have a flair or a knack for poetry, let me translate. Poetry is not simply a mathematical equation to be solved, but a thing to be felt. It is not a thing to be rushed through or beaten, but a thing to leisurely consume. It's not a thing to derive answers from, but a thing that experientially transforms. And as I reflect on this poem, I'm struck by how contrary this art form is to everyday life. Like where poetry is slow, we are really fast. Where poetry is patient, we are in a hurry. Where poetry is ethereal, we really want the concrete. And where poetry is very much a process, we desire immediate results. And this might be why the very art of poetry itself is said to be dying in the United States. There's actually a U.S. Census uh, that, excuse me, the U.S. Census Bureau actually conducted a study on, the, uh, on behalf of the Foundation of Arts back in 2012. Can you imagine getting a census and being like, do you read poetry? Uh, it's, it's strange. But uh, they did ask Americans this, and they found that 7% of Americans polled in 2012 had read a work of poetry at least once in the last year. And that was the most recent statistic I could find, friends, okay? We really obviously care a lot about poetry. And so some of you might be thinking, what's the big deal, right? Because 93% of you have not read a poem in the last year and could care less. Although that just changed today. Uh, here's why it matters. Many of the advocates of poetry and even poets themselves point to studies that show poetry's ability to sharpen observation skills and boost critical thought. Right, changing the way that you think. Jen Benka of the American Academy of Poets writes this, poems are comprised of everyday materials expertly arranged in ways that require a reader's time and reflection. But the reward is great. A memorable insight into our humanity or a line that perfectly encapsulates a moment or a truth we want to remember. An experience with language that provokes new ideas 
and a deeper understanding. Eugene Peterson, scholar, pastor, and author of the message, was kind of the first to capture my mind in regards to poetry. In fact, he argues in many of his books, in his interviews, in his podcasts, in fact, it's kind of like a soapbox of his, that Jesus' followers need to become better poets. Jesus' followers need to become better poets. And he says this, The Christian gospel is rooted in language. God spoke a creation into being. Our Savior was the Word made flesh. The poet is the person who uses words not primarily to convey information, but to make a relationship, shape beauty, and form truth. Today, I wonder if we have chosen to approach life, the scriptures, and maybe even our faith like a data-driven analyst or a CIA interrogator in an American TV drama, you fill in the blank, with, when instead we really should be approaching all of these things as poets. And so for my English teachers in the room, Alexandria, I see you, be proud of us today, right? Because we are going to use all of those skills that our English teachers gave us and apply them to this incredible, extraordinary group of writings we call the scriptures crafted by a divine author. And my hope is that in doing so, those very words will transform us. So over the last couple weeks, if you've not been with us, a quick recap. We've been journeying through a new sermon series entitled, Come Holy Spirit. We started the first week off in the Genesis account and learned that the Spirit is the very breath that we breathe. The Spirit both creates, but it also sustains life. And then we moved into the Pentateuch, which is the five books of Scripture, the first five books of Scripture. And we learned that our very work is empowered by the Holy Spirit, that we're given divine resource to do the task God has given us. And then this week, we are going to look at the Spirit of God in the history of Israel. So this is a period between Joshua and Nehemiah. I have a very big task ahead of me. This is a lot of study this week. Uh, the Spirit is specifically mentioned many times throughout these books, uh, and specifically it's mentioned in relation to Israel's leaders. Okay, so the Spirit filled some of Israel's leaders to then lead the people of God. So we first see God fill Moses with his spirit, and Moses liberate the people from Egypt and lead them to the promised land. That's kind of where we picked up last week. Then we see Joshua, Moses' successor, filled with the Holy Spirit and actually lead them into that promised land. We see judges appointed by God to guide the people to do the work of God's Spirit. And then, despite God's desires, they begin looking at the nations around them. And Israel says, we want to look like them. We want to have a king. And God is obviously a, a bit upset about this because he desires to be their true king, 
But regardless, he says, okay, I'm graciously, I will grant you one, and I will grant you kings that I fill with my Holy Spirit. And this is where we find ourselves today. For God appoints the first king, King Saul, but ultimately Saul fails to rely on the Spirit time and time again. And so Samuel, his prophet, is told, you must go and anoint a new king for Israel, even while Saul is still alive and reigning as king. And so Samuel goes to the house of Jesse, as God commands, and he anoints in secret, that's key, he anoints in secret, a new king named David. That's where we pick up in Samuel chapter 16. In the latter half of verse 12, it says, Then the Lord said to Samuel, Rise and anoint David. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came, present tense, powerfully upon him. David's anointing is significant here because according to Bible Project founder and scholar Tim Mackey, this is the first instance in the Old Testament since the fall of creation that anointing or liquid is associated with the falling of God's spirit. Eugene Peterson actually paraphrases this well, and I think he gets at the heart of what's trying to be communicated in the Hebrew. He says in his paraphrase of verse 13, the spirit of God entered David like a rush of wind. God vitally empowering him for the rest of his life. If you were here a few weeks ago, a light bulb should have gone off when you heard a rush of wind. We learned that in that creation account, when it says the spirit was hovering over the water, the word for that there is ruach, which also means wind. So in this moment, David receives the anointing oil and is immediately filled with the spirit that we saw in the very beginning in creation. And this should actually be a clue to the poets of us out there that something much bigger is happening in this story. That there is a thread being pulled on in this particular passage that points to a much broader theme in the story of Scripture. And this theme is one of anointing, which we will learn today is actually a symbol for God's liquid spirit. God's liquid spirit. And so to understand the function of the Spirit and what is happening in David's story more broadly, we're going to conduct what I'm going to call a tour of anointing. If my dad were here today, he would say, Cassie, it's tour. But I live in the Midwest, so this is tour of anointing for you today. And our first stop in this tour of anointing is the first person anointed with oil. And that person is Aaron, the first priest Aaron. So there are three kinds of people in the Old Testament who were anointed with oil. We've got priests, we've got kings, and we've got prophets. The prophet 
the jury's out on that. It says he was going to anoint him. We don't actually know if he does or not. But widely believed is that there were three different types of people that were anointed, those three categories. And this first person to be anointed is that first priest, Moses' brother, Aaron. And we find this story in Exodus chapter 30. In Exodus chapter 30, the tabernacle or the place where God's spirit is to dwell has been built. So the tent of meeting, the dwelling of God's spirit, the place where his spirit touching earth has been built. And God instructs Moses to take a mixture of spices and oil and to make anointing oil. And God says, anoint the tabernacle and every utensil, every piece of furniture. So it's as if the moment you step into the tabernacle court, you are actually in heaven. The very place where the spirit of God dwells, where heaven and earth collide. And so, similarly, in that thinking, God instructs Moses to anoint Aaron, the priest, and his sons to also be the priests. And we learn here that these priests are to function as a bridge between the people of God and God's spirit or presence. And this bridge is not one way. It's like a two-way street. Because yes, the priests or the anointed ones bring God's heavenly realm to the people on the land, but then they also represent the people on the land before God. And this idea of representation or anointing is not just derived from the context of these scriptures or the greater law of Moses, but actually from the recipe of anointing oil itself. So for my cooks and my bakers out there, there's some recipes in the Bible. Fun fact. Uh, And this recipe for anointing oil is found in Exodus chapter 30, verses 23 through 24. And it has two main components. Fragrant spices. So think cinnamon, myrrh, which is like evergreen, uh, cane sugar, like that type of sense or feel or smell that you would get. All of these different types of essentially bark that are used as a spice mixture. And then olive oil, which, quick little science lesson, if you didn't know, olive oil comes from an olive, which is a seed of an olive tree, okay? So you crush the olive and you get olive oil. So this first component these spices, this fragrance, is meant to make you think of nature or like a tree strolling through the forest. It's like if you've got that tree evergreen scent in your car on your dash, right? The moment you sit in your car, you get that sense or that smell, right, of trees. And your brain immediately associates it or thinks about walking through a green, lush forest of evergreens. Same idea here. The moment you smell those spices, you think forest, garden, abundance. And that second component, olive oil, represents life itself. As the olive, being the seed of that olive tree, contains olive oil or the very life juice of that tree. Some of you see where I'm going here. Anointing oil symbolizes a combination of liquid life, olive oil, 
and the smell of a perfect garden. The biblical authors in Exodus chapter 30 want us to see the image of the Garden of Eden condensed into a liquid and this liquid called anointing oil pouring down the head of Aaron. And so this brings us to stop number two on our tour, the creation account. So although anointing is not specifically mentioned in this creation or this Genesis account, the concept of liquid and spirit are. So out of the waters emerge dry land. God provides water from the wilderness to saturate all of the land, to bring about life and plants. And then God needs both water and spirit to create us. Let's look at it in Genesis chapter 2, verses 6 through 7. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. A better translation of the word dust here would actually be mud. Because notice, the ground was watered, and then God formed us like a potter uses clay to form a vase. God takes that formed mud and then breathes spirit or life into it. So order here, water or liquid is the precondition for the sprouting of both the garden and humans. So it's the base, and then the spirit uniquely breathes into humans, and that's what brings life. For my science people out there in chemistry, right, you need both a base and you need an active ingredient. So think baking soda, vinegar, volcano, right? Here, the base is water and land, and the active ingredient that brings about something new is spirit. And therefore, Adam is, Adam, humanity, is the first anointed one brought about by liquid spirit. And Adam does not need anointing oil, for he's received the real thing in the garden. Heaven touching earth, spirit touching land, water touching ground through the power of the spirit. And this is where the themes come crashing together like waves on a shore. Humanity was created by God's liquid spirit to bridge the gap between sky and land, heaven and earth, and to be God's image bearers or representatives to all of creation. Sound familiar? 
And despite the breaking of this relationship over and over again in that Genesis account and throughout all of the Old Testament, God seeks to restore this garden, his liquid spirit through his priests, his kings, his prophet, and eventually through Jesus Christ. But before we get there, stop number three on our tour of anointing. David as the anointed one. David as the anointed one. You know, as mentioned before, the portrait of the anointed one or the representative of God's spirit to the people takes a really big step in the story of David. So this is like a climax moment in the one big story of Jesus. In fact, David's story is the fullest story of anointing that we see in the Old Testament. David is unique in that he is the first person since the fall of creation to be given both liquid and spirit at the same time. And although David messes up time and time and time again, he is the best example in the Old Testament of someone who repents and continues to seek the guidance of the spirit even unto death, even in his own mistakes. And this is probably why David and the word anointed one are so closely associated in the Old Testament. So the word anointed one is only used 29 times and a vast majority of those, actually three, four specifically refer to David. Q, something is happening here. And so to learn more about this liquid spirit and what it means for humanity to regain that identity, we've got to study the story of David. And so whether you grew up in church or not, you may know King David by the story of David and Goliath or the story of David and Bathsheba. But interestingly enough, the majority or a huge chunk of David's story, especially in First and Second Samuel, is not necessarily about his military conduct conquests. It's not about his wealth. It's not about his kingly failings, but it's actually about the time he patiently waited and suffered before he became king. As we saw earlier, David is anointed king in a private ceremony with Samuel, but he does not actually become king for a long time. In fact, Saul, for 16 chapters, (laughs) works to hunt David down and kill him. This is actually where we get a majority of our psalms from this time in David's life. And in the midst of this fear and running for his life, David not only suffers, but he is given the choice time and time again to kill Saul and says, no. He says, I trust in the guidance of the Spirit and in God's timing. And so David succeeds where not just Saul, but so many before him failed time and time again. And in the midst of long suffering, tough situations, as the suffering servant, David becomes the embodiment of the anointed one. For my English majors in the room, did you catch my foreshadowing? 
This is why David is so closely associated with God's liquid spirit. Because on his best day, not on every day, but on his best day, he is the picture of the new Adam, the suffering servant, the anointed one that we eventually see in the person of Jesus the Christ. And so in the story of David, we discover the true meaning of the anointed one. It's a person who brings God's spirit to earth through, yes, victory, but also suffering. Stop number four on our tour. Jesus as the true anointed one. We get a sense in this book, uh, specifically the book of the prophet Isaiah, that Israel doesn't just need another king in the line of David, but that Israel needs another David. And we get a way better version of David in the person of Jesus. So let's turn our attention now to Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Mark writes, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. So Mark is quoting a prophecy in Isaiah, and he's about to tell us who's going to fulfill that prophecy, that person being John the Baptist. John, verse 4, appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Skipping ahead to verse 9, it reads, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. A voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son, with you, I am well pleased. Okay, poets in the room, did you catch the imagery? We have wilderness, land, there is water, and there is spirit. The earth was without form, and it was void. John and Jesus are in the wilderness. God brings water to the garden and forms man from the mud. Jesus is baptized with water by John in the Jordan. God breathed his presence into our nostrils. The spirit descends from broken heaven on Jesus like a dove. Land, water, spirit, divine poetry. Jesus's baptism is Jesus's anointing. The ultimate union between liquid and spirit, new Adam. 
And what does Jesus do in his life as a result? Well, much like a man named David, Jesus brings God's spirit both through suffering and through victory. And lest we have any doubt, let us look at the clue in Mark chapter 1. Mark writes the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some translations may say the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah. And Messiah is the Hebrew word for then the Greek word, Christ. And interestingly enough, Christ or Messiah or Mashiach, as it's known in the Hebrew, is not a noun. It's a verb. And this verb means to have oil poured on you. To be the anointed one. And so in the words of Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the anointed one. This is why Jesus stands in the synagogue in Nazareth, Luke, in Luke chapter 4, and quotes the prophet Isaiah saying, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has what? anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set a liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the Spirit bringing about victory. But we know that's not all Jesus does. He brings about the Spirit through suffering. As he is rejected by his friends, as he is hung on a cross to die. In the history of Israel, we see God's liquid spirit his anointing rest on the person of David. And David is the ultimate foreshadowing of the true anointed one, Jesus the Christ. And this anointed one brings about God's spirit to earth through both suffering and victory. Jesus is that true anointed one, the embodiment of liquid spirit, God's presence, heaven touching earth, sky touching land, spirit touching dust, the ultimate bridge, the ultimate priest, the true king. And the significance of this extends even further as we understand our identity as the anointed ones. So last stop on our journey today, stop number five, the anointed ones. In John chapter 20, verse 21 through 22, Jesus at this point has died on a cross, is miraculously resurrected. He's not quite yet ascended into God's presence yet. And he comes and he visits his disciples. And what does he say? He says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so in the same manner that the Father has sent me, 
to be his liquid spirit, his anointed one, to bring his spirit to earth through both victory and suffering, I am sending you. And when he had said this, what did he do? He breathed on them and said, receive my Holy Spirit. You are the anointed one, watered when you were dry. You are the anointed one, formed when you were formless. You are the anointed one given life by the Spirit when you were lifeless. And this is the good news. You now have liquid spirit. You are an anointed one designed to bring God's spirit to earth in the line of David and of Jesus through both suffering and victory. And this is where things get a little weird. Because we don't often think of the spirit leading us into suffering. Yeah, sure, he'd lead us into victory. But suffering... And of all the people to truly understand that and get that, I think Peter is one of those. Peter actually writes in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as if something strange were happening to you. Do not be surprised, anointed one, when you bring God's spirit to earth in a manner of not just victory, but also one of suffering. But rejoice in so as far as you receive, or excuse me, share in Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, or as some translations put it, Christians, if you are insulted for being Christian, Mashiachs, God's anointed ones designed to bring spirit to earth through suffering and victory, you are blessed because the spirit of God rests on you. And Peter knew this better than anyone as he hung on a cross and died for Jesus' name. God's spirit is brought to earth through you, not just through victory, but also through suffering. Just as David suffered and waited in choosing the path of nonviolence towards Saul, he suffered and waited in deep injustice and pain. Just as Jesus suffered betrayal, pain, rejection, you too will suffer those things and death just as he did. But just as David was appointed 
king. So we are appointed by God as his royal priesthood and have been given his spirit. And just as Jesus gained victory over death through resurrection, so we share in Jesus's resurrection life. We are Christians, Mashiachs, the anointed ones who follow the anointed one and bring God's spirit to the world through both suffering and victory. What an identity. Worship team, if you want to go ahead and join me. For my scientists, data analysts, and math-driven people in the room who have just been longing for me to ditch the poetic language already and get to the point, here it is. Normally, at the end of every sermon, we ask you to do something with your body to practice. But this is a rare instance in which I don't want you to do anything. Rather, I want you to think on something, to ponder, to reflect, and to turn over. In the words of poet Billy Collins, I don't want you to beat anointing with a hose to find out what it really means. I don't want you to bind it to a chair with a rope and interrogate it but I want you to water ski across its surface. Grope and find the light switch. Put your ear to it. When you feel fast, slow down. When you feel impatient, quiet yourself. When you desire concrete, sit with the abstract. When you desire an immediate result, remember it's a process. To be God's anointed ones, those that bring heaven to earth, sky to land, who manifest God's very presence here and change the world around us, we must first understand our identity as such, and that's a hard thing. In the words of the psalmist, we must feel that Garden of Eden oil in our hair, running down our faces, pooling in our shirt collar, cascading down our clothes. We must feel and remember the rush of liquid all around us as we are submerged in baptism waters and emerge dripping and saturated in God's liquid spirit. We must feel the oil in our very hair as we anoint the feet of others just as the woman did for Jesus. And hopefully, as we sit with anointing this new identity 
a realization that we possess liquid spirit, liquid life for the world around us, the everyday materials of life, this land, water, God's presence. As we sit with those things, hopefully we emerge with a new identity, a spirit empowerment that changes May we learn what it is like to be God's anointed ones, bringing his spirit here to land through both suffering and through victory. Let's pray. day-to-day life, in the midst of my failings, my ignorance, my frustration, and even my suffering, it's really hard to remember my image, my identity, my very nature, and my ability to bring your spirit to the world, to those around me. And as simple as that message is, I'm very challenged by it, God, because how many moments have I not brought your spirit to the world around me? How many moments have I been unable to see your spirit in my suffering and my pain? How many moments have I ignored your spirit as the source of my victories? Lord, I don't know of another way to adopt this reality, to really feel its meaning without your assistance. And so God, we pray now, may we know your anointing and may we be the anointed ones. listening to the Midtown Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.